Hey bubs, welcome back to another exciting episode of Talkin' Snicked, the best podcast there is at what it does, and what it does best is talk about Wolverine. I'm your host Ryan, and I have to say I'm really excited for today's episode. I am going to be taking you through the wonder of Origin, the 2001 six-issue miniseries from Jenkins, Kubert, and Isenoop, right after this. Should I call you Logan, Weapon X? No, Wolverine! Wolverine. 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 So... I mentioned that this book comes out in 2001, and it's not without its own controversy. It's called Origin because it tells us about the beginnings of Wolverine, who he is as a character, why he is the way he is. It's telling it all. And many people at the time, even now, think that Wolverine is a character best left shrouded in mystery. Wolverine has always been a character with a checkered past, to say the least. From his early days in Claremont's X-Men all the way through even his own ongoing series that launched in the late 80s, there were so many questions about Wolverine's past that were explicitly left open-ended. Uh, One of the things that a writer did in the Wolverine ongoing had kind of built in a gimmick where we actually learned that Wolverine, while he was being experimented on, was given false memory implants. And eventually we learned that almost all of Wolverine's memories from a certain point in the past on were in fact false memories. So it kind of gave writers something they can do where they'll explore a piece of Wolverine's past only for him to find out at the end that he was chasing down false memories. And that gimmick itself created a lot of buzz around this character. You know, Wolverine's past is looked at almost the exact same way that the Joker's past is looked at in DC Comics. He's a character who actually loses a piece of himself the more we learn about him. And Wolverine's the same way, at least to many. I remember the controversy surrounding this miniseries when it came out in 2001. I was 16 years old, and I was excited. I didn't know what to expect. I'm hoping that some of you who are listening haven't had a chance to read it yet and have that sense of wonder as well, where you really don't know what's coming, what kind of origin could they possibly give a character like Wolverine? One of the things that kind of cemented that controversy was an interview given by legendary X-Men writer and not the father of Wolverine, but definitely the godfather of Wolverine, and that is Chris Claremont. In an interview he gave to Berserker.com in 2001 or 2002, he was quoted as saying, to me, 
Wolverine should have no official origin. Pieces of his life should forever remain a closed book. And he went on to say, with a solo character, it's only a matter of time before the temptation becomes irresistible to stripmine those aspects of his history and character which make him so interesting and mysterious in the first place. And I think a lot of people agreed with Claremont, and even I did at that point uh, to some extent. Like I said, I was excited. I didn't really know what to expect, but I was also anxious. There was definitely some trepidation there on my part on whether or not this story would enhance Wolverine or detract from him as a character. Now, another thing to remember about the early 2000s, especially, you know, 2001, when it came to comics, is both Marvel and DC were coming off of periods of possible financial insolvency. Uh, The company that had owned Marvel Comics in the mid-90s, I believe, went bankrupt. And part of the thing that helped bail out Marvel Comics was the selling off of, you know, film and TV rights of certain other characters. But what that did is it kept the company in business and it gave them reasons to hire forward-thinking creators. And one of those creators was former writer slash artist named Joe Quesada. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, they were able to elevate him within the company to editor-in-chief. And with him rising up in the company came a new focus on shifting the stories from glitz and glam to the characters themselves. And with that, we got a lot of different introspective type stories in the early to mid 2000s. And foremost among them, of course, is origin. Now, I wanted to read just a a snippet here. This comes from the uh, front page of origin. And it's You know, like on the back of a book, you have the little summary. This is kind of a summary, a pre-summary of what to expect. And this is kind of what Marvel had said was the basis for telling this story. It says, For years we have followed Logan in the desperate search for his past, picking up bits and pieces everywhere, from the wilds of the Canadian wilderness to the teeming cities of Japan. To many, Wolverine is Marvel's finest hero the best there is at what he does. But to all, he is our most mysterious. Genetics, environment, divine intervention, what incredible forces created this man, the world's greatest killing machine, with a heart as big as the great outdoors? At long last, all will be revealed. And then it introduces the creative team, so I'll go ahead and jump in there. Now the story was done by uh, Bill Jemis, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, Joe Quesada, and Paul Jenkins. And Paul Jenkins is the actual writer. He wrote the script and everything and worked with the artist on how best to tell this story. Uh, The artist, of course, is Andy Kubert, who, at least up until this point, was best known for his seminal work in Adjectiveless X-Men. I love Andy Kubert's artwork, and... I think that he was the right choice for a story like this. And the uh, coloring was actually done by this fantastic digital painter named Richard Isenove. And 
the quality of his work really does give this a timely feel. And as we know, Wolverine is so old, obviously his origin story must take place so far back in the past that we want there to be some sort of a visual cue for the nostalgia of such a story. And the painting of Richard Eisenhove here it really does the story justice. Now, in the last two episodes, I took you guys through Wolverine Volume 1. That was the four-issue miniseries from 1982 by Claremont and Miller. And with that one, I pretty much took you guys through page by page, almost panel by panel, and with good reason. You don't do a Frank Miller book and not talk as much about the artwork as you possibly can. Last week, I took you through the three-issue miniseries, Logan, by Brian K. Vaughn and Eduardo Risso. And I didn't spend as much time going through page by page and panel by panel. And I don't think I'm going to do that again here either. I want to mostly focus on the story itself and how that shaped Wolverine from the turn of the century on. Uh, But first, before I do that, I wanted to speak a little bit about the creative team, the writing, and then the artwork, and then give you guys a little bit of a rundown of the cast of characters, or as uh, Shakespearean scholars would say, the dramatis personae. So, first off, we have Paul Jenkins. Now, I know that he's a well-known writer. Obviously, this thing mentions him as a Eisner Award-winning writer, but this really was my first foray with him. And like I had mentioned, the story itself was created not only by Jenkins alone, but by Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis. Now, Bill was the president and CEO of Marvel at the time, and then, like I had mentioned, Joe Quesada was the recently promoted editor-in-chief. So, on one of their retreats, you know, they take their bullpen out there and they come across stories. And, and this was a story that was proposed and probably shot down several times before they finally decided to actually tell it. And I like the amount of care they give in crafting this story. As I explore what the story itself actually contains, they managed to give an origin to a character whose main draw is that his past is a mystery. And they managed to keep much of the air of mystery about this story, despite the fact that they're flat out telling us this is who he is, this is whenabouts he was born, this is how his mutant powers manifested, this is his early life. They still managed to ask more questions about his origin than they answer. And I think that's really cool. And a lot of that comes through in the dialogue and the pacing. It's a six-issue miniseries, and Jenkins really crafts a three-act story. Uh, I collected this issue by issue when it first came out, but I actually prefer to read it in trade. So I I have it in the trade paperback as well. And I think it's best all read in one sitting, just because it does read as... A, you know, a three-act play or a three-act film. So from then, we're moving into the artwork. I had mentioned that uh, Andy Kubert is fantastic. He took over X-Men. 
adjectiveless X-Men in the 1990s after superstar artist Jim Lee left and Jim Lee's counterpart on Uncanny X-Men, Wills Portacio, left to be co-founders of Image Comics. Now, this was right at the very end of 1991, leading into 1992. So as Marvel was scrambling to find new writers and new artists to take over the book, Andy Kubert steps in as the new penciler on X-Men, and he nails the characters. In many ways, his artwork is as influential and as definitive of the 90s X-Men characters as Jim Lee's artwork. I mean, Jim Lee's biggest contribution to 90s X-Men is the costumes, but Kubert's artwork is among the best of that era. I would rank him right up there with Jim Lee and Joe Maderera as the guys who really drove home what 90s X-Men comics are. And I'm saying X-Men, I'm I'm leaving out X-Force, I'm leaving out Excalibur, I'm leaving out Generation X. Uh, Those books were also handled by uh, very talented artists, but I'm speaking mostly here of X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. Kubert also was there for a few sets of trading cards that came out after Jim Lee had left in the 90s. And... He was also the penciler on Ultimate X-Men when that initially launched with uh, Mark Miller. So to bring someone in like him who had been so definitive in his own right was, again, I think, a great choice. And like I had mentioned earlier, Richard Eisenhove's digital painting is is excellent. Now, I might date myself here a little bit. I might uh, sound a little strange, but... In soap operas, you know, whenever they go into like a dream sequence or a past sequence, they always have it in fog and there's, you know, satin sheets and things hanging from the ceiling and it uses those weird light filters so it almost looks like an 80s pop music video. And that's a visual cue. It's to let the watcher know. It's to let the audience know that this isn't happening right now. This isn't happening in real time. This is happening somewhere else some time else. And the paintings of Richard Eisenhove really drive that home in this entire series. Now, this is a series that takes place, you know, 100, 115 or so years in the past. I mean, this is a story that takes place in the 1890s or the early 1900s. And they make you realize that with the way the artwork goes. Now, Andy Kubert is known for clean lines that do best with, you know, real rich, vibrant colors. Hence why he was so great on the 90s X-Men. But the paintings here from Richard Eisenhove, they don't scrimp on color, but there's, there's a quality to them. There's an appearance of maybe smudginess, or maybe it just looks like these are old photos, or pictures on a canvas. There's something that he does with his digital painting here that really makes it look old, and it works really well. Now, this was also my uh, introduction to him, and I don't know what else he had done before and how much he has done since. I know that he actually teamed up with Kubert again for uh, Marvel 1602 that was written by Neil Gaiman. That was also a little miniseries that kind of takes place outside of continuity and it's almost like an Elseworld, you know, just a a different storyline 
familiar Marvel characters in a different setting in a different time. And his artwork, again, it works wonders there as well. One of the things that his artwork seems to be best on is the environment around it. Not just the characters, but how it makes the trees and the grass and the clouds look, especially wood. Uh, there's a lot of wood in this series, and that's kind of weird to say, but you know, wooden houses, wooden tables, wooden equipment, wooden tools and things. And it, it really does get across that this is happening a hundred years ago. So enough gushing about the team here. I want to go ahead and talk about some of the characters that we're introduced to throughout the series, and I'll probably talk about them as they're relevant to the story. I'm not going to introduce characters that first appeared in you know issues three, four, six. Uh, I'm going to talk about the characters that appear in the first few issues and move through there. So obviously we have Wolverine. And I mentioned that the storytellers here really do capture that sense of mystery that had been swirling around this character for 25 years at the at the time of publishing and they keep us guessing. The story as it begins revolves around a young girl age maybe between 10 and 13, beautiful young girl named Rose who comes to this very rich estate. And on this estate, there's a family, a very well-to-do family, obviously, called the Howlets. Now, the Howlets are led by Master John, or John Howlett. And he's married. His wife is Elizabeth Howlett. They have a young boy named James Howlett, and throughout the story, we learned that they had an older boy named John Howlett as well, who had passed away tragically at a young age. So that's the main kind of family that's the focus of these first few issues. And on the grounds, they have various crew maids and butlers. They have a groundskeeper named Thomas Logan and... Thomas Logan has a son who's about the same age as James and Rose, and his name, or at least what they call him, is Dog Logan, uh, just a young kid named Dog who just kind of hangs out on the Howlett estate and mostly keeps to himself, but uh, finds himself getting into trouble every now and then, as you know, a, a young ragamuffin <laughs> would do. We also meet a character, and I don't remember if they actually tell us his name or not, but uh, John Howlett's father, they mostly just refer to him as the old man, and he's, you know, very curmudgeonly. He's a cantankerous old man. He butts in and likes to point out every time his son is doing something wrong and making a wrong decision, which is pretty much every time the old man is on a panel. He is criticizing Master John in some way. <laughs> So that's our main cast of players. The story unfolds. Rose is brought to this estate because young Master James is a sickly child. He has allergies. He's unable to be outside for very long, but he's also very weak and sickly. So Rose, who has been recently orphaned due to both of her parents passing away from the influenza, as she puts it, 
comes to be a companion to him, you know, half caregiver, half friend to this young boy who is pretty much by himself with the exception of the other boy who is uh, dog Logan. Now with Rose being a friend and Rose there to look after him, young James Howlett is able to be outside a little bit longer because he's being supervised. You know, if there's an emergency, she can get the attention of someone else who can come to his aid. So they're able to spend a little bit more time out of doors. And by doing that, they kind of strike up a friendship with young dog Logan and the three of them, three of them become, you know, inseparable friends. And this all happens pretty early on. Uh, The passage of time isn't exactly set in stone in the, in the comic. I imagine a few years pass in the first two issues, give or take, uh, one of the things I do have to point out, though, is in this first issue, James Howlett has uh, black hair. And when we first see Dog Logan, he has brown hair. But an incident involving uh, James falling into the water about halfway through the comic uh, results in Dog's hair changing to black as well. I it's never really explicitly explained. I think that they just realized that uh, both of the boys were supposed to have black hair because you know Wolverine has black hair. So they give him that hair. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out about the artwork as well is Thomas Logan. Now, Thomas Logan, I had mentioned, is the groundskeeper on the Howlett estate. And he's mean. He's a drunk. The other groundskeepers, the other servants, the other members of the crew don't like him. They don't take kindly to him. But when you look at him, he is the spitting image of Wolverine from ever. Uh, He's got the black hair that kind of goes up to points, you know, on either side. He's got the long chops, you know, no mustache, no beard or anything like that. But the hair, you know, the sideburns comes all the way down to his mouth lines and everything. It's long and unkempt. And we learn that he's a real piece of work. You know, he uh, he abuses dog, he beats dog, and eventually because of it, dog becomes estranged from James and Rose. And he kind of becomes a recluse, you know, he's a boy with no friends. And eventually this first issue kind of ends around Christmas time. And Master John, the kind, sweethearted man that he is, sees Dog Logan, you know, kind of peeking in the window and trying to see what's going on. And so he gives him a toy train and, you know, just makes Dog's day. You know, Dog is, is over the moon. He's so excited that you know, this rich man would be kind enough to give him a toy as well. And he runs home and he's so happy. And in the meantime, James is given a a pet dog as well, you know, as an additional companion. You know, he kind of loses his friend dog, so he gets a new dog friend. And that's kind of how the first issue ends. We have dog coming home and telling Thomas, his father, you know, look what uh, look what Master Howlett gave me. Look at this toy, and Thomas Logan just beats him. He breaks the train, and 
the first issue ends on this really sad note. You see the hallowed estate way up on the mountain, you know, bright lights, burnings, warm and everything, snow's falling, and we get a little point of view shot from all the way down in the valley of this little wooden hovel. Is There's really no other way to describe it. I mean, it's a shack. And sitting on top of the shack is poor dog Logan just sitting there, probably freezing. He's bitter. You know, he hates his father. He hates the Howlets. It's just how things are going to go. And, I mean, that's the first issue. I'm trying not to, to go as in-depth with this one as I did the last two just because there are six issues to cover, and I really don't want to take up too much more of your time. I'm trying to keep this episode under an hour. Uh, but that is how the first issue ends, and it's really powerful. And at this point, we really don't know which of these boys, if either of them, becomes Wolverine. You know, is it the poor, beaten dog Logan, or is it the sickly, sad James Howlett? So the second issue starts, you know, some time has passed, maybe a year, maybe two years. Uh, but we we see... James kind of sitting and you can kind of tell that he's he's getting bored you know he's still sickly he's still sad he's still alone he misses his friend dog even though he has his own dog and we know that you know as Rose has gotten older as well she's taken on additional duties not only is she a caregiver and a friend to James but she's also helping out another of the servants who attends mostly to you know, Mistress Elizabeth. That's uh, James's mother. And at one point, she goes down and the servant says, you know, go bring some new clothes, bring up some new sheets, and before you come in, you know, knock on the door. We don't want to disturb Mistress Elizabeth. And so she goes down to fetch what she has to and she overhears, you know, the old man kind of laying into Master John here about how he's raising James to be, you know, well, a, a, a wimp, you know, a pansy, how he coddles him and all this. And, you know, maybe James wouldn't be such a sickly child if John was, you know, tougher on him and this and that. You know, typical meddling old grumpy man stuff. I'm, that's probably how I'll be when, when my sons are older and everything. Yeah, yeah. You don't do anything right and all this. No, I, I really hope not. I, that would suck for my sons and for myself. No, in all seriousness, uh, Rose gets the sheets that uh, that she needs, and she comes back upstairs. She knocks on the door, but she doesn't wait for an answer. She just knocks and enters, and we see Elizabeth getting dressed with the help of her servant, and on her left side, from her back to her ribs, the, like the front side of the ribs or so her whole entire side, she has these three giant slash marks and you know the lady hurries Rose out the door and says not another word and you forget what you saw and this and that and you know there's some added mystery so okay all right someone had someone with three claws or something with three claws has attacked her and you know Rose afraid and terrified of everything just runs out of the mansion and in the, on the mansion just like the stanley hotel there is a hedge maze so of course rose runs into the hedge maze to catch her breath and you know recuperate from what she had seen and there she runs into no good dog logan who 
tries to uh, make some passes at her and tries to advance on her in an extremely aggressive way. I'm, I'm trying to skirt around it here, but it's not good. Uh, in the meantime, James had seen that Rose had run out of the house, and so he comes out to to check on her and see if everything's okay, and that's when he stumbles upon this uh, this assault. And James says, I'll get, you know, don't worry, Rose, I'll, I'll find father. And in the confusion, Rose is able to slap dog right across the face and get away before the attack became violent. So good thing for her, she was able to avoid just an awful situation. But now we kind of know that, well, dog's a piece of crap. And uh, James is not one to be able to you know fight his own battles. He couldn't step in and, and, and help Rose defend herself. He had to, to run and get help as well. Luckily, that gave Rose the opportunity that she needed to to set things apart here and uh, slap dog herself and escape, which which is great. You actually see that strength come into play a few issues down the line too. So I just thought that was a really cool, really cool thing to do. And so, you know, naturally John tells Thomas Logan, you know, this is, this is the last straw, you know, you need to get your son in check. If anything happens like this ever again, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable. And, you know, the whole time Thomas Logan is just scowling and he's angry and you can tell that uh he's not mad at dog he's mad at john for you know talking down to him because of what his boy did and you know he he doesn't think his boy did anything wrong and this and that it doesn't necessarily expressly say that but i mean that's it's implied from the dialogue and the the facial expressions now in the meantime james is outside and this is where we see he's at uh, the, the family graveyard, there's a gravestone here. And on the gravestone, it says, John Howlett, beloved son, lost before his time, 1885 to 1897. Now, this is the aforementioned older brother of James. So we know that he's actually passed away. I had mentioned that, you know, he had passed away tragically. But he was born in 1885, died in 1897. He was 12 years old. And I think that would then mean that James was probably born sometime around his death. So maybe a little bit before or a little bit after. So we're talking 1895 to, which of course would mean that uh, Dog is probably also that same age since they seem to have been born around the same time frame. I mean, they seem to be the same age. Anyway, while James is here at this graveyard, Dog is hiding in the trees, and he sees that James is alone, and he confronts him, and he tries to fight James, and luckily James's dog is there, so Dog bites Dog, and, you know, he, he falls down, and he grabs the dog, and he murders the dog right in front of James. And it's pretty gruesome. I mean, they don't show a whole lot of blood or anything like that. The colors are actually very muted. But it's it's pretty sad, you know. It was this cute little dog that uh, was just trying to help its master. And a uh, human dog just kills it. And so, you know, that's the final straw. John Howlett throws Thomas Logan off the property grounds. He's no longer welcome there. 
And he pretty much says, you know, if you come back, we will do more than just throw you off the grounds, pretty much. I don't think that he's necessarily implying if you come back, I'll kill you. But he's pretty much saying if you come back, then, you know, best case scenario, you're not leaving without, you know, a pretty severe beating. And so naturally, Dog is at home, terrified, just waiting for his father, Thomas, to come home and and beat him in exchange. But instead, this is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Thomas. He says, you know, we're going to change that. He's up there, you know, soft John is up there living in this this mansion with this beautiful wife and this beautiful house and thinks that he can treat us this way. No way. So he and Dog get shotguns or rifles or whatever, and they trespass. They break onto the family grounds here. They find Rose, who's out working with uh, Master Kenneth. It's one of the servants gathering firewood. They're able to, uh, it looks like they kill Mr. Kenneth, and they take Rose into the house. You know, they take Rose hostage, have her get them into the house where Thomas goes to get Elizabeth. And he says, hey, Elizabeth, it's Thomas. Do you understand what's going on? Let's let's head out. So you kind of get the feeling, and they had hinted at it in the first issue, that there was a past between Elizabeth and Thomas. And it was probably a secret, and John probably doesn't even know about it. It's just this unspoken thing. But they imply that there has been a tryst or two between these two. And so they're in Elizabeth's Elizabeth's room making a little bit too much noise, and that's when John comes in. And naturally, John, you know, he's in his sleeping clothes, he's in his nightshirt and everything, and, you know, Thomas and Dog are armed with, with weapons. And they're telling John, you know, shut up, give me your money, we've had enough of this, you can't treat us this way. And Thomas is holding a gun, right in John's face when James comes in. And I think James entering the room startles Thomas and he unloads both barrels right into Thomas's face. And this is a lot more gruesome than the death of the dog. But seeing this causes James to, well, freak out. He runs to his father. He's screaming, you know, it's it's me, get up. You can't, you know, you can't be laying there. Get up. And that's when Dog comes over and holds a gun to him. And he's, you know, James, shut up or I'll shoot you. And, you know, Rose again jumps in and pushes the gun out of the way. But it goes off. And that's enough to stir James. And James gets up and he slaps Dog right across the face. And then he runs at Thomas. And he hits Thomas right in the stomach. And, you know, Thomas fights back and he knocks James down with his gun and he points his gun at James and he says, you know, if you do that again, I'll kill you. And then suddenly he realizes that his insides are, well, now they're on the outside. He has been ripped open and he falls to the ground dead. And the looks that we get on Rose and Elizabeth's faces here are, are perfect. And we get this, this shot of young James Howlett with claws protruding from his hands as he lays on the ground on his knees in pain, screaming. You see his father dead at his legs. You see Thomas Logan dead in the background, and you see Dog Logan holding his face 
while it's just gushing blood. And that is how the second issue ends. So it's finally revealed, possibly, that James Howlett, sickly, sad James Howlett, is Wolverine. And the third issue picks up right where issue number two leaves off. James is in pain. He's got these bone claws. It's all kinds of messed up. Eventually, his mother gets a grip on herself and is able to approach him. And James says, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, who are these people? Where's dad? So you already see that, you know, using his power perhaps blocks his memories, wipes out his short-term memory. That could help explain why he has such a hard time remembering. And the mother is having none of it. She slaps him and she says something along the lines of, let me, and let me find it actually, because I want to, to say it specifically to you. She says, oh, not again, not you, James. So I think that they're implying here that the claw marks we saw on her are most likely from John Howlett, the son, the older brother of James Howlett, who had died in 1897 at the age of 12. Chances are he manifested his powers, possibly attacked the mother, and was killed. And so Elizabeth is terrified here. She tells him, get out. She starts throwing things at him. And James, terrified, just flees from the house. And Rose runs after him. So in the room it's left is dead Thomas Logan, dead John Howlett, dog Logan holding his face. And Elizabeth goes to Thomas, not to John. And she cradles his his corpse in her hands. And she says, Oh, Thomas, what have I done? And she says, you know, I knew this would happen again, Thomas. And she commits suicide. She takes the the hunting rifle from Dog and ends her life. So poor Dog, maybe, alone, all by himself, up in the house. And Rose has ran after James, who's pretty much near unconscious, just laying on the ground. And Rose takes him to a barn where he can rest for a little while. And there's some dialogue here. You know, Rose is freaked out because she doesn't know what's going on. For all she knows, the James is a monster. And he seems to be losing his memory. The old man is notified of his son and his, you know, daughter-in-law and his grandson and everything. And now that we know that uh, James Howlett is Wolverine, Dog's hair mysteriously is back to brown. So I just thought that was kind of funny that they're like, oh, we should probably have some mystery. So they give him both black hair and then now his hair is brown again. So I just thought that was funny. Anyway, Rose takes James to her aunt's house, but her aunt turns her away. And with no one else to turn to, Rose takes James to the old man's house. And the old man says, as far as I'm concerned, my grandson is dead. Now, here's some money. Get out of here before I change my mind. And we see them on a train. Rose and James on a train says, now leaving Alberta, and they're heading to British Columbia. Now, it's funny because we know that this is the late 1800s, or at least the early 1900s, but the locomotive that they have here is very much an mid 19th century 
locomotive. So who knows? Maybe that's the kind, you know, maybe they were still using uh, coal engines up in Canada. But I think by that point, um, American trains had changed over to fuel. But I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm probably way wrong. I'm not a huge train guy, but I'm pretty certain that turn of the century trains in the United States were a little bit more advanced than, uh, than they were back in the 1840s. <laughs> Anywho, they arrive in British Columbia, and the only place that they can find shelter is in a mining colony, way up in you know very you know, extremely high northern British Columbia, almost up to the Yukon Territory. And they may actually have gone into the Yukon Territory out of British Columbia. Anyway, there's a foreman there named Smitty, and while Rose and James are kind of entering this little community, he points at James and he, hey, you, you know, you look like a, a wimp. Let me see your hands. And Rose is freaked out, but uh, by then the claws are inside. So she dodges that bullet and uh, she tells Smitty that uh, her and James are cousins and they have no more family. So they're trying to find somewhere where they can make ends meet. And so Smitty goes, well, OK, but it's it's difficult out here. So uh, what's your name? And for some reason, and we have no idea why, Rose says, Logan, his name is Logan. So that's where James Hallett gets the name Logan. And that's how the second, or I'm, I'm sorry, that's how the third issue ends. So we go into the fourth issue, and now we're going to have a few more characters get introduced, um, namely someone named Cookie. And Cookie resembles Blob, you know, he's a, he's a regular old uh, Fred J. Dukes. He is a bully. He's the cook. He picks on James because James is very weak. Um just because his mutant powers have begun to manifest doesn't mean that he's not sickly little James Hallett anymore. And eventually James and Rose are kind of taken under Smitty's wing. So I'm thinking that in this fourth issue, a few years pass because it starts off, like I said, with, with James being sickly. And he has a few run-ins with Cookie and Smitty comes to help him, and by the end of the issue, James has grown into a young man, and he's still timid, he's still shy, he's still that same weak boy, but he's strong enough and smart enough that Smitty kind of takes a liking to him. So much so that at one point, Smitty is walking by one night where James is being kind of beaten on by Cookie. And Smitty puts a stop to it. You know, he punches, he, he, you know, he knocks out Cookie and says, you know, don't come near him anymore. But in the commotion, James runs away afraid and ends up in the wilderness where he is then surrounded by a pack of wolves. And he manages to finally pop his claws, something that he'd been trying to do during, you know, downtime and alone time all throughout this issue, he's finally able to pop his his bone claws, uh, but he doesn't have it in him to to fight the alpha wolf, so he submits to it and, I don't know, becomes a part of the pack, but not the leader of the pack, I guess, is kind of what the metaphor they're going for. 
Again, it's kind of tired. I don't know why people constantly lump Wolverine in with wolves. We've got him with wolves here. He's got wolf iconography all throughout his original ongoing series from 88. There's a whole story about uh, Wolverine's howling at the moon in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is funny because it's a good story until the end when the Wolverines start howling at the moon. But a Wolverine is not a wolf. It's not like a cute name for a wolf cub. It's not like a wolf is a grown wolf and a Wolverine is a wolf cub. It's just a wolf cub. A Wolverine is a completely separate animal. Uh, but it always it always just kind of makes me laugh and, and scratch my head as, as far as like why creators and and of course you know jenkins and kubert and eisenover no exception but yeah whatever i'll run i like wolves so i'll run with it but that takes us into uh the penultimate issue of this mini series here issue number five and again it's kind of the same thing you know we see james kind of come into his own with this with this pack he's becoming vicious he's learning how to hunt He's developing that killer instinct, finally, that he's been lacking for so long. And it's to the point where he has a run-in with Cookie a little bit later, and he's able to hold his own. But before we get into that, he, like I said, he's been growing into his own. He's been growing strong, finally. It's to the point where he's becoming a strong young man. And Smitty takes notice, again, of, of... you know, Logan, as he's known here, his proprietorship, his ambition, I guess, or maybe it's just his hard work, uh, but he decides to give him a job with demolitions. He teaches him how to use dynamite, and Logan no longer pushes a wheelbarrow of rocks from one part of the quarry to another. Now he's actually one of the guys that gets to, uh, to blow open those holes, so that will come into play a little bit later on. See, Cookie knows that Logan is in charge of the dynamite. And he decides to sabotage Logan. We see, There's a scene where Cookie is in the munitions depot and he's clipping the fuses to make them much shorter. You know, you have a fuse that gives you a certain amount of time to clear the blast area once it's been lit. And in this case, he shortens them quite a bit so you don't have nearly as much time and eventually there is a cave-in at the quarry where Logan is working and they find him you know there's this desperate search for Logan and any other survivors and eventually they find young Logan underneath an upturned wheelbarrow kind of cradling a young child in his arms. Why there was a young child up in the uh, demolitions area of the quarry, I have no idea, but for the sake of this story, we'll just say that he was the water boy and uh, Logan saved his life and that was uh, that was amazing and that really kind of cemented his status as the de facto number 2, you know, the young Smitty. He will be next in line, you know, it's some something short of a miracle what he did surviving that blast and all that so while he's recuperating smitty stops by and he's kind of regaling logan and rose with tales of when he was a sailor and he gives logan a book to read while logan is recuperating and it's a book about japanese samurai so that that was kind of cool it was just a neat little nod like hey 
Hey, everyone who loves Wolverine, you know that part about Wolverine that you love the best, that uh, failed samurai kind of thing? Well, here's where that started. So that was kind of cool. Anyway, after uh, after Logan recuperates enough, he goes and he finds Cookie because he knows that it was Cookie that did it and confronts him and beats him. And he's so excited that he stood up for himself to a human this time that he runs home to tell Rose and he spies Rose and Smitty in an embrace. Needless to say, there's some uh, passionate kissing going on, which I... I think it's kind of gross because they were like 13 or 14 years old when they arrived and Smitty was probably like 50. So he's like in his, well, I mean, I guess it's not terrible, mid-50s and, and 20s. I mean, this was the early 1900s, but still, it's like, nah, whatever. It, it works, I guess. Yeah, now that I think about it, I guess I don't have any qualms with it. But when I first read it, it was definitely shocking. I was like, really, Smitty, the old man? But... Yeah, 19th, 1900s, early 20th century. I suppose that was probably the norm, huh? Anyway, this angers Wolverine a bit, and he runs back into the woods. And this time, the wolves can sense that he's different. And so the alpha male of the pack challenges him, and this time he doesn't back down. Wolverine fights the alpha male into submission, and so the alpha male leaves, and Wolverine is now leader of the pack. And you'd think that that would be the end of the fifth issue, but no. It flashes back to Alberta where we see the old man on his deathbed. And he says, you know, I, I, my only regret is that I turned James away when he need, needed my help. Please, can you find him? And we find out that the man he's talking to is just this huge, burly, saber-tooth-looking dude with uh, a scar of three claws slashed across his face and the old man says you know please find my grandson and he says i promise sir i'll hunt him to the ends of the earth like a dog so it's like oh well okay apparently in the aftermath of everything the old man took dog into his care so that's weird but uh yeah so dog that gets to come back full circle the sixth issue is a little weird there's like a fight within a fight and people being weird and everything. Ultimately there's a cage match, which is also a nice little callback to uh, X-Men. The first movie that came out, you know, the year before this was published, a little cage match with Wolverine where eventually he lets Smitty beat him to do the right thing so that Smitty will earn enough money to be able to retire and take Rose and get married and leave, which would then leave Logan in charge of the quarry. So they have their little fight, you know, Logan is able to defeat Cookie in the ring, which is a little bit of vindication, even though he just beat him up in the fifth issue. Uh, it's still a little bit of a vindication. It's kind of him, the final, you know, cementation saying like, this is it, you know, last time I beat you up, but this time it's, this is the last time that, you know, we're going to be around each other. You leave me alone or I will kill you next time. Um so there's that, you know, we get to see Wolverine again developing that killer instinct. And right after everything ends and everyone's all happy and whatnot, who were to show up but Dog Logan. And I have to say, I think they're really trying to play off the fact here that they want us to believe that Dog Logan is Sabretooth, that he becomes Victor Creed at some point and his healing factor kicks in and 
he loses the scar on his face, but he always knows who Wolverine is and all that. And they show him, you know, he's a mountain man. He's wearing rags. He's wearing wilderness kind of stuff. He's got long fingernails for some reason and all that. Anyway, he arrives in town after successfully tracking down James Howlett, who we know is Logan now, and they fight. And they fight and they fight and they fight. And it's not as elegant as the fighting that we see in the in the uh, Wolverine miniseries from episode one that we discussed. And it's not as violent as the fighting we see between him and uh, Lieutenant Warren in the Logan miniseries that we talked about last week. It's a little different. It's It's early. It's raw. And I think it works, especially for the time period here. Anywho, so they're fighting, and at one point Wolverine pops his claws, and he's getting ready to kill Dog when Rose shows up to try to plead with Logan not to kill him, and she gets bumped by the crowd, and she lands on Wolverine's claws and dies pretty much right away. So that sucks. Uh, Anyway, Wolverine beats Dog Logan, but Wolverine disgusted with himself for having killed Rose, even though it was completely accidental and not his fault whatsoever. He runs off into the wilderness and the storyline closes with Smitty kind of going crazy. We don't know what happened to dog. And this whole time, this whole series, Rose has been writing down their life in her diary to give it to Logan one day so that hopefully, you know, he'll remember what happened in Alberta. And the very last scene we see after Wolverine escapes into the wilderness, you know, you think once and for all uh, is we see cookie in his old house, Wolverine's old house, and he's kind of rifling through their belongings and he comes across the diary and he throws it in the fire. And that's the end. You know, that's, there goes Wolverine's last connection to his past. So that, that wraps it up. That is the miniseries. That's all six issues right there. Like I said, it's definitely three acts. There's the first act, which is the boy, leading up to the popping of the claws. There's the second act, which is him becoming a man. And there's the third act, which is him leaving society. It's him being pushed over the edge to become the animal that he is. So I liked it. Uh, I think it's a great series. I think that they accomplished their goal of telling the origin without ruining the character. I don't think that knowing this story takes away from any of the other stories. I mean, it kind of sucks because now everyone seems to know that Wolverine is James Hallett, so you get mentions of it all the time. But, I mean, otherwise, that nothing terrible came out of this. But we did get a really good sense of where that innate goodness came from, where that strength of Wolverine came from, how that killer instinct was developed. Yeah, they they did a great job. I love the series. It's a series I recommend it to any Wolverine fan that hasn't read it or I always recommend it to anyone I know that says, "Hey, you know, what's a good Wolverine story that I should read?" Uh, I always go with Volume 1, Wolverine Volume 1 by Claremont Miller, obviously hands down the best. But I give him this one as well and say, "Hey, this is going to give you some good insight without damaging the character. He still has the mysterious past." He still has the history with Weapon X. He still has the implanted memories. It, the character wasn't diminished, and I think that they 
succeeded. Now, this series did spawn a direct sequel called Origin 2 and a spiritual sequel called Wolverine The End, uh, neither of which were very good, but I might maybe do an episode where I cover both of them. I think one of them is four issues and one of them is five issues, and there's not really a whole lot of ground to cover. So if you guys want that, I might cover those in a future episode. But I think next week I will be getting back to some more Japan stories. So again, guys, if you like the podcast, you make sure that you subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it. Check it out on the website, which is talkinsnicked.pinecast.co. That's if you don't use any apps, you just want to stream it directly from the computer, you can do it on there. Make sure you follow me on Twitter, at TalkinSnicked. I recently created a Tumblr, which is TalkinSnicked, and you can reach me on uh, th- through email at TalkSnicked, not Talkin, just TalkSnicked at Gmail. Dot com. Love to hear from you guys. Uh, it's probably still a little too early to ask for reviews, but if you want to go ahead and rate and review the podcast on iTunes, that would be great. And I hope to hear from you guys. So until next time, bubs. <laughs>